Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Almost here, round the corner technology. Today, I'm speaking with Joseph uh, Chicolo, the founder yes, and right. president. Yeah, I got it right. The founder <laughs> and president of uh, BitAML.com. Um, I'll let him explain more what they do, but they appear to help companies dealing with Bitcoin understand and navigate the compliance, the AML, and uh, possibly KYC requirements. Is that right, Joe? Yeah, well said, Richard. Yeah, FitAML, we're, we're a full-service uh, regulatory compliance consulting firm. Uh, our primary focus is on helping our clients with AML and KYC uh, regulation. Uh, we help guide our clients through the uh, registration and licensing process uh, and then help them prepare their AML program, uh, which for uh, the majority of regulated uh, entities within the Bitcoin space, uh, the core requirement is to develop uh, and implement a written AML program, and so uh, that's where we come into play. Okay, I'm, I'm glad to be talking to you, and I think it's a very, very important interview because we've got all these companies in the Bitcoin space that are innovating and doing all kinds of stuff, but you almost never hear about, you know, what AML means, what KYC means, what are the, you know, the stumbling blocks, what people have to know about, so I want to delve into that. Um, first of all, for listeners, in case you don't know, and it's not obvious, AML is anti-money laundering, and KYC is know your customer. So um, first, Joe, so what kind of, um, when do you get into an area where you have to worry about AML and KYC? What is it about a given enterprise that makes them um, subject to these regulations? Sure, sure. There's so many unique business models, especially in, the, in a space like Bitcoin, as you can imagine, um, that it's really hard to, to sort of generalize, but... Uh, as best I can, I'll give an overview of maybe some of the triggers, uh, if you will, that would uh, likely result in, in being required to register and, and obtain AML. Um, generally speaking, if you provide a service that uh, allows customers to uh, come into and out of the Bitcoin ecosystem uh, and or fiat currency system, so traditional currencies, if you provide some mm -hmm. form of exchange, uh, most likely you would be regulated. Um, there are other uh, types of, of uh, applications as well. Uh, if you get into areas where uh, you um, are involving securities or treat Bitcoin as a commodity, um, regulation would also apply there as well. Um, and we also have some very unique uh, sort of uh, approaches uh, to exchanging Bitcoin. Um, I don't know if maybe some of your listeners or you personally have seen a Bitcoin ATM machine out there. Uh, in the I have, place. yeah, uh, yeah. In, yeah. Uh, so those, those. Uh, I'm in those uh, Austin, Texas. Well. Yeah, I'm in oh, Austin, yeah. Texas, and I was going to use one a long time ago, and it wanted a picture of my driver's license and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, yeah, I saw it. Oh, so so you experienced KYC firsthand, right there. Know your customer, right? They ask for your ID and some pieces of information. So I think you're yep. uh, you're a good case study for for AML in action, right there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so, all right, so um, you talked first about, I call it a moat or like this, this bridge of the fiat world into the crypto world. So in and out of there, um, if you offer customers a way to turn fiat into crypto or crypto into fiat, you said you're subject to these regulations, right? 
Yeah, typically, and I like your analogy. The, the analogy that I use as well um, is, is sort of on ramps and off ramps. So if you uh, if you are standing there, uh, you know, at the bottom or the top of the exit, on ramp and off ramp, uh, and you're allowing individuals to come into and out of uh, the cryptocurrency system, um, there is the sort of toll booth, if you will, uh, where the government and the regulators set up shop, uh, and that's uh, generally where you'll find me helping my clients. So. Um how come once you transfer um, fiat to crypto and you're in the crypto, you know, protected space or the, you know, inside the interior walls, now you're in the crypto world, why are there no regulations if I turn uh, Dogecoin to Litecoin or Bitcoin to Monero? Uh, there, there may be regulations when you exchange between cryptocurrencies if you provide that as a service. Um, I, I know that uh, there are some services out there that do offer that. Um, type of arrangement, uh, but if you do go crypto to crypto, uh, regulation uh, does apply. Uh, now, if individuals are, are transferring their own, uh, you know, cryptocurrency on their own and moving it between wallets and doing it themselves as a personal activity, they themselves are not uh, subject to regulation, uh, but rather the entities that provide that service or facilitate that service uh, would be subject to regulation and compliance. And if um, if Bitcoin is worldwide. I mean, is AML and KYC, are those U.S. regulations? Are they global regulations? You know, who do they apply to, and, and do different countries have different regulations? Sure. Uh, AML and, and KYC are, generally speaking, they're very consistent um, across nations around the world, uh, particularly among uh, industrialized and Western, Western nations. Um, there are several international groups um, that allow uh, for that consistency. Um, in, in terms of getting the governments together and sort of sitting down and making sure um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of parity and a lot of sort of sameness uh, in terms of their approach. Now, obviously, with different jurisdictions or different customs and and uh, you know sort of different uh, government acronyms and, and uh, organizations within government that perform the oversight and how it's implemented may vary. Uh, but there is a lot of consistency, which I think is is pretty interesting um, that we have a lot of that. Uh, cooperation between the nations, um, at least on this particular subject. When did these uh, laws come about, and have they recently strengthened or changed? Sure. So AML is a concept. Um, technically speaking, under U.S. law, there, was, there were really no laws uh, concerning money laundering uh, until uh, it was criminalized in the, in the 1980s. Um, so it's pretty interesting. Um, so technically speaking, um, Al Capone didn't launder any money because it wasn't illegal. <laughs> Although under today's definitions, uh, we, we could certainly, um, you know, if it was going on today, he could certainly be charged with that as a crime. Um, so I, I think a lot of these sort of onus uh, in pursuing money laundering and really, um, you know, making that a, a full-time focus, if you will, uh, of government and government agencies uh, came about during the 1980s. So if we can sort of think back to that time period um, here in the U.S., Obviously, there was a, a war on drugs going on. Um, there was a, a lot of activity going on in, in southern Florida uh, relative to the war on drugs, and there were a lot of proceeds of, of uh, illegal activities that, that were flooding banks. Um, people literally coming in, and we've probably seen this in movies, people literally showing up at banks with duffel bags full of cash. Um, that really happened, and uh, it started to get some lawmakers thinking. And, um, you know, since then, we've... I've seen several iterations of AML moving forward, uh, including post 
um, and other events that have sparked, um, you know, interest in investing in this area. Okay. What, what's your background? How did you get into this particular area of, uh, you know, the Bitcoin sphere? Yeah, so I spent about a decade uh, in bank compliance, um, working mostly in AML, but also fraud prevention and corporate due diligence. Um, I got into uh, to Bitcoin about a couple of years ago, uh, so some time ago. I guess that makes me fairly new to the Bitcoin space, but uh, it was something that I just sort of stumbled upon uh, accidentally, um, you know, through my my various interests in the subject of anti-money laundering and. and rules and regulations, um, someone had mentioned at a conference that, you know, there's this thing called Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, and so I began exploring and, and uh, as they say, going down the rabbit hole, researching uh, mm. Bitcoin and, and the different facets of the industry, um, and I was fascinated. Um, can you go over some of the basic, you know, I've, me, like a lot of other people, we may throw around the term AML and KYC, but knowing what it means and what the provisions are is a totally different story. So I don't want you to be exhaustive, but what are some of the most important provisions in both that companies and people need to be aware of? Sure. I think at a high level, you know, there's several ways of looking at this, right? Um, with respect to AML, you have to put in place certain controls uh, that are designed to uh, thwart money laundering related activities. Uh, responsibilities include certain records that need to be kept. Uh, there's also certain reporting requirements, um, reporting suspicious or unusual activity through a SAR, SAR. Uh, also reporting cash activity uh, in uh, denominations greater than $10,000, which would be a currency transaction report, or CTR. Uh, so okay. those are sort of you know, two key reporting mechanisms. Uh, but there's also an obligation overall with this AML program uh, to conduct day-to-day -day compliance activities to make sure that your uh, company, your organization, uh, is not co-opted by criminal elements and is not used uh, as a vehicle to launder the proceeds of illegal activity. Okay, so that's, that, is that more the AML side? What about the uh, the KYC, the Know Your Customer? What are what are these companies obligated? What information are they obligated to collect on their customers? Sure, sure, absolutely. So Know Your Customer KYC is part of AML, um, and, and as you alluded to, that part of it is okay, getting to know your customer collecting certain pieces of information, uh, right? You have to begin collecting customer and transactional information uh, more in depth at $1,000. Uh, you have to verify customer identification and customer uh, ID at $3,000. And as I mentioned before, anything over $10,000, you have to file a CTR. Um, and so, <clears throat> again, a lot, of, a lot of information has to be retained by the uh, Bitcoin ATM or, or Bitcoin Exchange Service or whatever the regulated entity is, uh, they have to obtain this information and or uh, perform some verification uh, to indeed verify that that customer is who they say they are. Okay. Um, yeah, I've used Coinbase, for instance, you know, um, mm -hmm. and they wanted, I forget what they wanted, you know, a picture of your license and uh, a utility bill and this and that. And so now I think I understand why certain limits are not available to you until you um, add enough verification. They wanted you to verify, like, you know, four or five different things. And they have different levels, and uh, they have different money amounts yes. that you can transfer based on your level. Is that why? Yes, that's correct. The, the tiered-based uh, approach, uh, which is, sounds like what you were describing, a uh, tiered-based approach is very common. Uh, in the money services space, both in the legacy money transmitter space as well as in the Bitcoin space. 
um, as everything is, is for the most part uh, based on the transaction, not necessarily based on the individual customer. So as you, as you would imagine, uh, and this seems pretty intuitive, uh, if you get higher and higher in terms of transactional amount and volume, uh, they tend to ask more information. Uh, and in fact, depending on the, the, uh, the risk or the risk uh, approach uh, taken by an institution, they may start asking other questions related to the source of funds and the source of income uh, of their particular clients. Uh, again, especially as there's more uh, volume, higher amounts, and, and therefore more risk uh, that would be taken on by that organization or, or uh, entity. It seems really obtrusive. I mean, it's, it's not just the organization being nosy. They're, are they forced to ask things like source of funds? I mean, it, it seems pretty invasive. Yeah, it, it does seem pretty invasive, and, and I think if anyone's recently opened a bank account, um, they've probably encountered similar sets of questions. Um, you know, how many wires do you think you'll be doing? How many ACHs do you think you'll be getting in? Um, you know, what's your typical uh, volume look like on a monthly basis? Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that obviously tends to be more for banks and larger institutions. And I said, uh, as I said before, you know, if there's sort of a higher risk perceived by an institution, they may start uh, asking those questions um, that, as you've alluded to. I, I would agree. I think that they are uh, somewhat intrusive. Um, unfortunately, I think that uh, over time, as AML has become more and more um, sophisticated and commonplace, uh, it seems like we're seeing uh, a greater emphasis on collecting that information uh, and really, uh, I guess, really, really knowing, knowing your customer versus just sort of knowing your customer from a verification standpoint, but getting to know their activities. Um, and using that as a basis on which to decide if any activity they're conducting uh, seems unusual or suspicious. It's kind of funny, you know, old school banking, you'd walk into a branch and meet with the bankers and, you know, ask them for loans and sit across the table from them. And then for years, it's now going online and people think, oh, it's anonymous and private and they don't have to deal with people. But AML and KYC seems to be pulling it back in a, in a different way towards the uh, forced personal interaction or at least, yeah, like a one-sided um, looking into customer data. So it's just kind of funny how it's, it's coming back the other way, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And, and what I would add uh, is from the, the regulator standpoint, um, uses of technology that uh, take away from a one-on-one -on -one or an in-person experience uh, are in the, in the eyes of the regulator presenting more risk. Uh, because as you mentioned, it, it's not necessarily anonymous, right? Because they have your information, but you're not there in front yeah. of that person. Uh, and so there are different variables uh, within the context of that exchange, that request, that information going back and forth that could not otherwise be uh, analyzed um, were it not for uh, the fact that a computer stands between the two of parties versus uh, an in-person encounter. Mm. And I have an unusual question about limits. You talked about a $1,000 limit, $3,000, $10,000, various reports have to be filed. How does that translate into the value of Bitcoin? Let's say Bitcoin is $1,000, you know, a Bitcoin, and I want to transfer mm -hmm. um, 11 Bitcoins to somebody, so it's $11,000. Will that trigger the same kind of reporting because the value of the Bitcoin at that moment exceeds 10000 or is it not uh, rooted in that same way and the limit's different? Right, and, and the regulators do point uh, point out the scenario um, in their uh, in their guidance and their deliverables uh, uh, they've released into the marketplace, and, and they've said it's all based on dollar denominations. So anytime they're talking about limitations that exist that have existed, 
any sort of thresholds, uh, they're going to be reviewed from a dollar denomination standpoint. Um, so uh, I think from from that perspective, it sort of uh, it, it sort of makes it uh, fairly benign as to what uh, the current rate is, or um, you know, if it's a round number. Well, wouldn't that make someone um, you know people would know that? Wouldn't a bad actor just change uh, you know fifty thousand in fiat to Bitcoin, transfer it, and then transfer it back to fiat and some other currency or the same currency to avoid this? Um, so there are laws against trying to avoid uh, reporting requirements. Uh, so uh, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with the term structuring. Um, it seems pretty intuitive when you think about it, right? So an individual would structure his or her sets of transaction or individual transaction to get around a reporting threshold. Uh, so I suppose the most common uh, example or the most basic example of structuring would be uh, someone comes into a bank and upon learning that a currency transaction report would be filed for their uh, $11,000 transaction, they say, well, you know, I'm going to do a $600 transaction and a $500 transaction, or, or excuse me, a $5,000 transaction, so that the net sum of $11,000 has been broken up um, hmm. and in their way trying to avoid a, a CTR. So um, right. there, are, <laughs> there are rules against that, uh, and banks will certainly uh, file a suspicious activity report and report that uh, to uh, FinCEN. Okay, so you're not supposed to do that, but I'm sure people do it in in ways as to avoid these triggers and are successful at least part of the time, but it's frowned upon, I'm sure. Absolutely, and, and having worked uh, for you know traditional banks, I, I've seen this, and, and it happens every day. Um, I, I don't necessarily um, think that people sort of understand the seriousness of this or, or necessarily think it through uh, when they're doing it. Uh, it may be looked at as, well, you know, I'm just trying to avoid filling out a piece of paper. You know, maybe it was something as innocuous as that, uh, that concept that crossed someone's mind. Uh, but in the end, they find themselves on, on, the, uh, on the losing end of a, a suspicious activity report with their name on it being filed. Um, and in the past, Regulators and law enforcement uh, have engaged in programs where they've uh, reached out uh, through in-person contact to individuals that are engaged in this activity, uh, knocked on their door, and informed them that while they may, may or may not be aware, their activity is considered structuring and is illegal under the law, and, hey, would you sign this piece of paper telling, telling us that, you, that we explain this to you and that you'll never do it again? Um, that was something that uh, law enforcement uh, and the regulators did uh, some time ago. I don't know if they're still engaged in that activity, um, but huh. I think it sort of I think it sort of under underscores the fact that many people really didn't think of it through think it through as you know this is an illegal activity or this is something that is very serious. Um, you know, again, it could be something as, as sort of innocuous as oh, I just didn't want to fill out a piece of paper and I couldn't be bothered. Right. What yeah? What's the consequence if you trigger? Um, a CTR report or any of these other reports, um, you know, what could happen even if uh, you're just conducting normal business? Right. So uh, CTR is more informational. There's no, uh, there's no, not necessarily a connotation of anything suspicious. It's just simply a report of uh, cash trans transaction in excess of $10,000 in or out uh, of a financial institution. With respect to a suspicious activity report or SAR, um, that is filed with FinCEN, and FinCEN puts that basically into a, a big database. Um, they do some sort of metrics and, 
and uh, release reports on statistics and filings and that sort of thing at a very sort of macro level. Uh, but that database is something that law enforcement uh, has access to. And there are groups that meet all over the country uh, of law enforcement members in different, uh, different agencies, whether it's DEA or Secret Service or the local municipal police. And they get together in a round table and they read over SARS and they talk about trends and, and uh, you know, they use that as sort of a tool, uh, a tip sheet, if you will, uh, to pursue certain investigations. Uh, and in some cases, law enforcement may already be on, on the trail, so to speak, uh, of some suspects, and they would look into the FinCEN database and say, hmm, I wonder if John Doe uh, has a report on him because we know his activities involve a very lucrative cash business. And so they would then conduct a, a search of the database to see if John Doe, in fact, had something uh, on file. Okay. Um, so let's get back to the uh, the compliance aspect that you help companies with. So what are some of the initial things or most important things that you have to help uh, Bitcoin-based companies deal with? You know, what are some of the, the main things? Sure. I think the main thing is developing the AML program. Um, so uh, it's interesting that, that the, my clients over the past, um, I'd say, six months or so, I've noticed, uh, have been a little bit more well-versed in AML uh, and KYC. And they're sort of coming, coming to me and saying, hey, Joe, I know, I know there's something I need uh, in terms of AML. I get that there's some basic concepts about reporting activity and keeping records, but I really need to, to have a strategy. I need, to, need your help to form uh, a compliance strategy and a written AML program. Um, so that's where I start with my clients getting to know what their business model is, how it works, and understanding the risks that are, uh, that are posed based on the business model and then developing a compliance strategy around that. Can you give um, an example of a, model, a business model that would be heavily regulated versus one that would be less regulated, a com, you know, two common business models? Sure. I, I think in the, in the Bitcoin space, um, you know, for the most part, the clients that I work with are, uh, are considered money transmitters. So a lot of their services are, are pretty much uh, on par in terms of level of risk. I think some of the areas where the risk factors change a little bit is based on geography, right? So I, I think that we could argue there's a higher risk in operating a Bitcoin ATM uh, in a high crime area in a major metropolitan area uh, versus maybe more of a, a sort of a rural or suburban area uh, where the risk factors uh, of that geography are different. Um, I've, uh, I've worked with uh, clients that are in the uh, legalized cannabis space. So you're mixing uh, together uh, to higher risk uh, types of services, right? So you have a, a Bitcoin money transmission-based business uh, that is engaged in uh, work with and, and sort of appealing to a customer base that is also uh, deemed high risk. So those sorts of factors uh, sway the level of risk. Yeah, what is a money transmitter? What are the thresholds where you're considered that? And what does that mean? Oh, sure. So I guess I'll back up a little bit. Uh, so when I help my clients that are regulated, they are, for the most part, deemed money transmitters by FinCEN. So FinCEN is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. It's a bureau of the U.S. Treasury. Um, I suppose the, the best way to think of them is the top uh, money laundering watchdog, if you will, uh, at the federal okay. level. And they have deemed in their regulatory guidance that companies that are uh, engaged in the exchange or offering the exchange of Bitcoin uh, to fiat currency and vice versa, fiat to Bitcoin, or, or any cryptocurrency for that matter, 
they're deemed a money transmitter. Um, so the, the term money transmitter might seem a little little dated, right? I think we can all think about for a second, you know, MoneyGram and Western Union, and uh, so same set of regulations that apply to that uh, that group or that that cohort uh, apply to folks in the Bitcoin space. All right. Well, what are what are some of the limits, though? Let's say I'm, uh, you know, just a regular guy and I want to um, buy bitcoins from people locally and trade them. You know, is there a certain monetary thresholds that if I exceed them or number of trades, where I'm running into danger of being considered a money transmitter? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So there's no threshold for turning on and off, um, if you will, uh, whether you're a money transmitter or not. Uh, the test comes down to your business model and how you're offering it. So in, in the case, and I think you sort of alluded to it, if, if we had a hypothetical individual who was um, engaging in the trade of, of Bitcoin, in other words, he or she um, you know, decided to purchase some Bitcoin, wait around a little bit, and then maybe go trade it with someone uh, and you know, do that over a period of time and, and uh, you know, obviously try to, to buy low and sell high, um, the government's position, although it's still a bit of a gray area, the government and the regulatory position is he or she is more of a user uh, than an exchanger and therefore is only seeking for their own benefit to uh, then realize the gain of their investment. Right. So obviously there are taxes that have to be paid and, and some other regulations that might apply uh, with respect to, uh, to the IRS. But... Um, and in those instances, generally speaking, uh, if someone's doing it for their own benefit uh, and simply trading uh, on their own behalf, the government takes the position, more or less, that he or she is a user, uh, in this case, as an investor. Yeah, another strange question comes to mind. I had thought the IRS said Bitcoin is a commodity. It's not a currency. So... Why is it even called money at all, I guess, in the eyes of the U.S. at least? Wouldn't it be called an equity or, you know, something else? Uh, yeah, so Bitcoin has been called many things, uh, <laughs> depending upon the, the agency or the speaker. Um, from the IRS perspective, the IRS deems Bitcoin as property. So uh, for the purposes of taxation, that necessarily means uh, capital gains or capital loss. So if someone purchases a, bit, purchases a Bitcoin, uh, or some fraction thereof, uh, some Bitcoins, and they realize they gain or a loss when they sell it, um, they have to document that and obviously, um, you know, work with their accountant, I'm not an accountant, so work with their accountant to understand if um, if and, and what uh, tax implications apply uh, to that transaction. Uh, you mentioned commodity. Uh, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission has said that in certain circumstances, Bitcoin is a commodity. Um, as I mentioned earlier, FinCEN said that Bitcoin is money transmission, and I know the SEC has uh, weighed in slightly. They kind of dipped their toe uh, and has said on certain occasions, and, and depending upon the business model, Bitcoin could be deemed a security. And uh, it was interesting. I was at a conference talking, and, and someone had asked me, Gee, Joe, you know, this is great. It's all these different things. You know, which is it? And I said, well, it's all of the above. You know, it depends on your business model. It depends on, on what you're doing. You can't pick the one you like. Um, you know, there's a possibility that the regulators or the government uh, could take the position that maybe you are more than one or you are perhaps the, the designation that uh, requires more regulation. So uh, it's very dependent upon the, the business model and what you are providing to your customers. And as I said, there's no shortage of creative ideas uh, in this space. So it's, it's uh, 
definitely something you want to get a hold of, you want to check out, uh, and certainly research and, and reach out to folks in the in the legal and the compliance space. Yeah, it sounds tough because if it's if it's if different agencies consider it different things, that probably means that at the whim of one or more agencies, it could be considered any or all of those things, and it could uh, be difficult to navigate the waters if you get in trouble. You know. Yes, that's definitely a, certainly a possibility. Um, you know, like I said before, it's something you want to get out ahead of. And, and uh, you know, I've worked with clients and, and I've worked with law offices across the country. And, and uh, you know, we've taken client hypotheticals and looked at it and said, okay, well, the government could take the position that based on the facts you've provided, you would be a commodity, a commodity uh, or you'd be engaged in commodities or you'd be engaged in money transmission. Um, so definitely good to, to talk through those different scenarios and understand uh, what you could potentially be looking at. And uh, in many cases, it, it's just simply a good practice to reach out to the regulators um, and say, hey, look, here's what I think I'm doing. Here's my business model. Here's my thesis as to what uh, I think uh, I qualify for uh, under the definitions of the rules that we have and the guidance that we have. What do you think, Mr. Regulator? And um, mm -hmm. I, I think that uh, if I had said that a couple of years ago in the Bitcoin space, I, I might have been... Uh, I'm going to throw tomatoes at me on the stage, but I, I think that the space has sort of matured uh, to the point where we do have a lot of entrepreneurs and and, uh, and folks that are really, uh, you know, sort of buckling down on the nuts and bolts of operating a business and they understand that, generally speaking, it's best practice to get these answers early on, you know, do your research and, um, you know, accept the fact that somehow regulation is going to apply, um, particularly, again, as I said, if you're engaged in, you know, sort of offering exchange-related uh, services or somehow, um, you know, at the entrance and exit to the traditional financial system. Hmm. Um, so in addition to companies consulting with you on the AML KYC stuff, any other resources you'd recommend that people talk to? You know, when you say talk to regulators, I, I know I'm not asking for names, but agencies, um, <laughs> any recommendations on possible ones that you, know, you recommend to speak to and how you'd even get in touch with them? Right. I, I, most regulatory agencies do have a contact, um, excuse me, a contact website uh, or contact page on their website uh, or some means of, of getting a hold of them. Um, the agency that you would reach out to, again, would depend upon your business model. Um, if, as I said before, if it's uh, more, more or less focused on exchanging, um, you know, sort of exchanging Bitcoin for fiat and fiat for Bitcoin, like a Bitcoin ATM or a Bitcoin exchange or something of that nature. It's most likely FinCEN. Uh, but as soon as you go down that sort of role or that sort of um, path uh, where uh, your role becomes more involved in, in investments and securities and things like that, you'd certainly want to reach out to the CFTC uh, and or the Securities and Exchange Commission for uh, some sort of determination uh, as to what uh, rules may apply to you. Okay. And just, just a couple more questions, if I may. Um, sure. You talked about money transmitters as being like a very common business model. Um, any other common business models you're seeing? Or if not, you know, maybe we could focus in more on money transmitters and talk about, you know, some of the things that they have to comply with and Sure, I think money transmission is probably the the most common in the Bitcoin space, and and uh, you know that covers the uh, 600 or so so um, 
Bitcoin ATMs we have in the U.S. Um, you know, there's Bitcoin exchanges are covered under that as well. Um, and there are sort of um, various different models in between. Um, I've heard of individuals partnering with retail establishments to provide literally over-the-counter um, <laughs> exchanges uh, between a cashier um, at a retail establishment and a customer. So that sort of that sort of um, application uh, of regulation, that money transmission, if you will, that uh, seems to be the most common in this space. Um, we haven't seen as many things, um, you know, in the securities and commodities space. Um, that may be more of a reflection of the uh, intense nature of getting licensed uh, by the SEC and, and the CFTC. Um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously, we're grateful that we have, you know, <laughs> we have to go through a process. Uh, we don't want anyone, just anyone, selling securities out in the street. Um, but that process is a, is a lot more of a deliberative. Uh, it's a lot more of a back-and-forth engagement, uh, whereas with money transmission, uh, at the federal level, when you register with FinCEN, uh, it's a declarative um, registration. Um, people can fill out the form in anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour if they really take their time. Um, and basically what you're saying is, hey, over here, regulate me, right? It's, it's a declaration. Uh, and in that declaration, when you're doing that, um, to get to your question about uh, requirements, when you register with FinCEN, you agree by clicking the, the submit button, you're agreeing to obtain licensure in each state in which you do business, if it's applicable, and you agree to implement the AML program, which is what I help my clients with. Um, mm. Okay. Um, yeah, again, just a couple more questions. The whole idea of Bitcoin seemed to be, you know, anonymous and, you know, you know, thumb your nose at the banks and et cetera and all that. It seems like it's um, come off of that and it's, it's getting much closer to actual um, fiat currency in terms of regulations and behavior and control and all that. Where, how do you see the space evolving? Do you think people are... Um, still foolish, or, or you think they're foolish if they think the notion that, oh, I can, you know, uh, have money and, and work in Bitcoin and avoid the banking system and I don't have to worry about anything, or do you think these two worlds are going to collide and coalesce really soon? Yeah, I don't know if they're necessarily going to collide. I, I think that you're right. We are moving in, in a direction uh, that seems to be going away from the original thesis of, of Bitcoin, which is, you know, outside of, of government, outside of state. Um, well, then the government and the state stepped in and said, well, you do have to, you know, register. You do have to do these things. So um, it is more or less kind of coming together, and, and, and Bitcoin uh, as a space is looking more and more like traditional financial services, um, albeit leaner uh, and, uh, and a little bit more, I would say, a little bit more entrepreneurial. Um, I don't see banks as being very innovative, and they haven't been for a long time. So I think that there's an edge that the Bitcoin community has, but again, back to your point, I think that uh, we're getting away from Satoshi Nakamoto's original thesis about what you know Bitcoin can stand and, and, and could stand for, could represent. Um, and I think I, I mentioned earlier in our, our interview that it seems to me that more and more people coming into the space have that sort of small business owner and entrepreneurial background where they are predisposed to accept the fact that regulation is here. Um, you know, to a business owner, uh, regulations like furniture, it's always been here. Um, but when you get into the tech world and, and uh, the personalities and, and the sort of uh, philosophy of folks in that world, uh, they're very, uh, it's very much an anathema to, uh, you know, to regulation. Um, they sort of see this as, well, why do we need this? 
Um, and, and I'm not here to take sides or, or debate that issue, but uh, you know, I, I'd like to uh, you know I'd like to see a little bit more uh, you know sort of opportunity for advancement and innovation uh, before we have regulation, and, and certainly before we have regulation for regulation's sake. Hmm. And I think people may you know some people may think, oh, I've got Bitcoin. It can't be taken from me. It can't be subject to again the government's whim. But it seems like uh, that's probably not the case at all. I mean, a lot of people seem to say, you know, oh, Bitcoin can't be stopped. It can't be, you know, it's decentralized. It, it can never be taken down. But it doesn't seem like it, especially as it's heading towards more of a, you know, again, more regulation and um, becoming more of like a normal financial part of the financial system. Right, and, and I think you might be uh, thinking about the network, right? So the network can't be taken down uh, by the government. But if you have a wallet uh, or you're using an exchange service and they offer custodial services, meaning they hold your Bitcoin for you, uh, those mm -hmm. entities can receive subpoenas, right? So uh, they can freeze, uh, they can freeze uh, your uh, Bitcoin, your asset, um, you know, if they have, a, if they have access uh, you know, to your private key if they have access to your Bitcoin. Um, individual wallets, that, that might pose a, a bigger challenge, um, where, whereby if you have a wallet where um, the wallet provider doesn't even have access uh, to your information, it's completely up to you to be able to open that wallet and provide your private key, your password, um, and a multi-sig uh, to be able to access your own funds. Um, that becomes a little bit more difficult. And, uh, if one were to try to freeze those assets, it then becomes a little bit more intrusive uh, if it were uh, someone representing the government trying to get a hold of those assets, trying to, to freeze those. I don't know how you could, can tell someone to uh, unlock their phone uh, and, you know, show them through their different, uh, their different uh, apps, and, and maybe that officer would recognize a, a wallet app. Um, obviously, this is sort of a, a strange example, but, you know, just sort of highlights the fact that it, that's sort of difficult to do. and. And I kind of draw a parallel between that and, and uh, you know, prepaid cards. I know that's something that FinCEN and some, some of the other uh, AML watchdogs in the space, in the regulatory space, are really uh, looking at are prepaid cards. Um, so this is in the traditional space, not in the Bitcoin space. But nonetheless, here you have a vehicle uh, for moving money that um, in some ways is sort of disconnected from uh, an audit trail, right? So it's possible to have several... Mm -hmm prepaid cards in your wallet. Um, I've heard from Homeland Security that they've, you know, <laughs> they've looked in door panels and they found stacks and stacks of these prepaid cards. Uh, and huh. they come to find out later on they have lots of funds on them. So um, that's something that's a point of emphasis for FinCEN and some of these agencies. But, uh, you know, back to your question about, you know, how do we, how do we look at censorship and think about that and, and government's ability to, uh, to freeze funds? You know, we're looking at a greater intrusion, and uh, I, I don't know how that plays out, and and uh, I don't know. We'll see. Okay. All right. So yeah, last question for um, for businesses that uh, want to enter the Bitcoin space. You know, either as a money transmitter or some other business model. Um, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you to get the uh, AML compliance side uh, boned up and and running properly? Sure. Uh, I'm, I can be reached by email, uh, joe at bitaml.com. Or if, uh, if your listeners want to check out my website and read a little bit about, uh, you know, some pre-resources on there and some other information about uh, the Bitcoin space and, 
compliance and regulatory obligations, they can go onto my website. It's bitaml.com. And uh, there's other opportunities there for the for us to get connected. And um, you know, I've I've always believed that in the space of compliance, um, you know, to help out as many people as you can, because if the more folks we have out there that are compliant, that are thinking through the rules and regulations, that are making good faith effort uh, to be compliant and to do things on the up and up, the better it is for the entire industry. So um, even if folks just want to give me a call and bounce off an idea, or or uh, you know somehow you know, just sort of get in touch and, and begin a dialogue. Uh, I'm very excited to uh, uh, to engage with, with anyone that wants to uh, wants to discuss Bitcoin and Bitcoin compliance. Okay. Well, that's great. Uh, Joseph Chicolo of bitaml.com, I appreciate you taking the time to do the interview. It's been uh, very informative. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review and discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.